Hello everybody and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. Enjoy today's episode of this joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. If you want to get in touch with the show, follow us on Facebook or Twitter using the handle at KickbackGAP. Welcome to this new episode of Kickback. My name is Niels Kovist and this week I'm interviewing Shaul Shalby. He's the Associate Professor for Experimental Economics at the University of Amsterdam and at the Center for Research in Experimental Economics and Political Decision Making. Have fun. This week we're honored to have Shaul Shalby on the pod. I'm really excited for several reasons. One of them being that we've been working together on corruption and we've been trying out together to establish a sort of behavioral perspective on corruption. Now, I know that you've been working on this subject for quite some time. What was your initial motivation to do research on corruption-related issues? Well, it's great to be on the podcast. The motivation to study corruption was the impact corruption has on society. So I read this report about uh, coming up from the European Commission, and they estimated the cost of corruption to the EU to be equal to its annual budget. So there's a lot of money being wasted uh, on corruption. And this is a huge problem. So we need to tackle it. And then how do you tackle it? Well, you can tackle it from all kinds of disciplines and perspectives. But what I noticed was that psychology and economics or experimental economics don't do that that much. So I thought, okay, this is something that we should look into. And why do you think it is that there has been a lack of research from, like, especially psychology, because it's quite striking. There are hardly any psychologists interested in corruption, at least until uh, recently, right? Well, I think that the, there was a, a growing interest in the topic of ethical behavior and moral behavior on the individual level. So we studied a lot in psychology, uh, the normative uh, or the, the times and the situations and the type of individuals that would engage in normative behavior, for example, those who would violate rules or would follow them. What we haven't done until more recently was to take it a step further to say, okay, there are all kinds of rules that people might be following when they are acting on their own behalf, but what happens when they start to interact with others? And I think this was a real big missing part. And in, in a sense, I was very excited to read about your work because your work takes it to the next level and tries to think about the social aspects of a, well, unethical behavior of corruption. And uh, yeah, so this was a huge gap. And you mentioned that before that, psychologists and behavioral scientists have mostly looked at individual tasks. I mean, you helped to shape the field that's called behavioral ethics. Could you tell our listeners who might not be familiar with this field a little bit what a typical behavioral ethics study looks like, what methods you use, and what insights you've gained? Yeah, so this is a really interesting field that I'm very excited to be part of. I started to read about the work of colleagues like Max Bezeman at Harvard Business School and others who have really established this field not so long ago. And the insight was we can try to think about ethics from a normative perspective, as has been done for many, many, many years. But 
essentially we care about behavior. So when we try to shape people's behavior, we can tell them what to do but we can, and what they should do, but we can also ask ourselves, what do they do when they are facing uh, situations which might tempt them to act, to violate rules? So it's a very scientific approach for ethics. So we can collect data on how people behave in different situations. And once we understand that very well, we can try to yeah, design environments in which people would act more ethically or at least highlight to people what are the settings in which they might uh, succumb to temptation and uh, violate ethical rules. So the way that we do that, we bring, in a, in a typical study, we would bring people to the lab. These could be university students, but it's, it can also be uh, from outside the university. And we will let them play all kind of what we call experimental games that try to tease apart different psychological mechanisms. Now that sounds like big words, but what does it mean? It means that on the one hand, these participants would be asked to follow the rules of some task, but they would have an incentive not to do so. So I'll give you a concrete example. So in one of the tasks that we've been using, we bring students to the lab and we give them a dice, just a regular dice as you have in Monopoly. And we ask them, please roll the dice and report the outcome of the die. And they report it. And then they get paid according to the number that they report rolling. So if they report rolling one, they get one euro or dollars if it's in the States. If they report three, they get three euros. And if they say six, they receive six euros. And there are no tricks. They really receive this money. The trick is that they roll the die privately. So only they know what the outcome that they observed really was. And that gives them this wiggle room and the opportunity to report numbers that they have not observed, right? So they're able to roll a one and then tell us, I rolled a six. And then by violating the rules of the task and abusing this asymmetric information, this information advantage that they have, they uh, end up earning much more money than they were supposed to had they followed the rules. Now, we don't have any hidden cameras or any special equipment to figure out whether they're lying or not, but we know statistics. So if we have enough people rolling dice and they're all reporting honestly, then we should get the same number of people reporting ones, more or less, or twos, and so on, and sixes. That's not what we get. We get by far more sixes compared to ones. So we can conclude that participants, or at least some of them, are inflating their scores. They're lying for profit. And one of your, I would say, really ingenious setups was that you compared one condition where people rolled the die once and had to report it once. And in another condition, you let participants roll the die three times and said, only report the third one, right? Now, objectively, this would lead to the same results. It should, but it doesn't, right? Would you mind telling us exactly. a little bit about what so, you find there and how you interpret the results there? Exactly. So what we did was exactly as you described. We say in one treatment, roll the die and report the outcome, just like I explained before. In the other treatment, we say roll the die three times and tell us what the outcome of the first, the first die roll was. The first one, okay. Yeah. And, you know, if you roll the one 
on the thing imagine that you rolled a one on the first die roll and then four on the second and two on the third you're instructed to report the outcome of the first die roll only so you're supposed to say one our hunch was that it would be easier for these individuals to report a higher number just because they saw higher numbers in the later rolls that don't count for pay so if you saw one on the roll that counts for pay and then four and a two you might feel okay about saying four but not so much five or six that you haven't observed so it feels quite okay to to choose to upgrade your outcome to an outcome that you observed but not to other outcomes that you have not so you stretch the truth but only to an extent and indeed what we find is that when people roll multiple times they lie more compared to if they lie on if they roll only once yeah I remember from the the keynote you gave at our conference that you said like bending the rules is often easier than completely breaking them or, or and could you maybe also tell a little bit more, more about that exactly so it's super fascinating I think this is exactly the point so people like to have a good explanation to what they're doing we call it justifications but they like to rationalize their actions so when you see kids growing up learning to lie is actually a, an important cognitive skill that they're developing and they You see in research that has been done by our colleagues in, in Lyon, Marie Claire Villeval and others, they find that when the kids grow up, they learn that when they lie, they need to have a good story to be attached to the lie. They wouldn't lie if they don't have some good excuse. And we find that indeed these justifications, these reporting higher roles than you actually observed, as long as you... As long as you sell them in some uh, role that didn't count for payment, it liberates people to lie. So then people feel legitimate to bend rules, not so much to invent new facts. Right. There was a nice paper recently in, in Nature by uh, Jonathan Schulz and Simon Gerter, and they, they used this task around the globe and looked at the correlation between the level of corrupt, corruption in the country measured by all kinds of indices like the... like by transparency international and so on so national level corruption and the extent to which people violate rules on the die rolling task in those countries and what they found was a, co- a positive correlation so the more corrupt the country was the more likely people from this country were to over report but what was more interesting for me even was the fact that the People from the more corrupt countries were even more likely to follow these rules and report the highest number that you have observed. Mm-hmm. So there you could really see that people start to follow these or they're in the mindset of let's have a good excuse for what we're doing. Right. Because I, I remember you wrote a commentary in Nature on mm. this and I, I really like the title. It basically says corruption corrupts. Right? Yes. It's a very basic insight and it seems to be that often people are trapped in an environment that Where you're exposed to rule violations of others and that might in turn give you some sort of justification to break the rules yourself exactly and I think this is exactly the point so I think that the culture that you're in well we can say traps you in this mindset that uh, some type of behaviors are legitimate this is also what you see right I mean you observe certain behaviors you don't even interpret them as corrupt I, we might call it corrupt other people might call it Uh, you know just the behavior that for them is normative uh, and then we get into all kind of interesting discussions now of course eventually we want to have good definitions of corruptions 
decide what we're tackling together and, and just uh, root out these behaviors that are non, non-desirable and costly for everyone. Because of course, corruption uh, costs and, and harms, especially those who live in the country that suffer the most from, from this kind of... Uh, I think that the one fascinating thing that, uh, that is still open after this study that, uh, that uh, Schulz and, and Gachter have conducted was that they didn't look how people from different cultures interact, right? I mean, and the world is so global and people travel and people trade internationally and they go on student exchange and they visit and they travel and they immigrate. And how do these norms from one group influence people from the other group? Yeah, that's, that's still an open issue. Yeah, I remember one paper um, that looked at people immigrating to the UK and they showed that after a while they started, even though they come from a country that according to the corruption perception index is a high corruption country, yeah. after a while they start actually adjusting to the rules in the UK. Yeah. Right? So yeah. I, I think it's sort of in line with this idea that it's not really the people that are per se corrupt, but it's an environment that, that to some extent leaves the, or leaves them no other choice but to be corrupt right? in, in many instances. You mentioned one thing that I find interesting and that I know you've done work on is basically when it comes to corruption, it's very easy to think that there is no victim. And some even call it a victimless crime, which, like you just said, is obviously not correct. I mean, I think another analogy is much better to say it's it's a tax paid by the poor, right? Mm. Like it's sort of an extra burden for the most vulnerable parts of the society. Now... From a psychological perspective, it makes a huge difference whether the victim that you're hurting with your behavior is someone that you can see mm-hmm. or is some abstract entity like the society, whatever that is, you know. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about like the insights you've gained when it comes to the, the abstractness and concreteness of the victim? Yeah, so I think that the, what we've recently found using a strategy that is called a meta-analysis, so we just take all the papers that exist on a certain topic and look at the effects that are emerging on the aggregate. So it's really useful because then we don't hinge on a specific uh, study design or a specific sample. But when we look on the aggregate of a lot of papers published on the topic of uh, dishonesty, we see that when there is another person that suffers, people lie less in general compared to uh, when the person that suffers from one's lies is more abstract. And this is actually quite typical in the experiments that we're running because typically it will be exactly the setup that I told you before that I, the experimenter, will pay you a certain amount. But it's very vague who this person is or what the research budget really means and so on. But if on the other hand I would tell you the person that is going to pay for when you lie is another person sitting in the lab, people lie less. Another example is a test that we used recently in which we told participants, so we had die being rolled on the screen. So now we know if the person is lying or not. And they know that you know, basically. And they know that I know. So when we started to design the study, we thought, hey, are they going to lie at all or not? It was unclear what's going to happen. Well, a significant proportion of participants came there to earn money. So they were lying nevertheless. But what we did there was we said, if you report inaccurately, then this money goes off a donation to charity. And we see that this also has an effect. So participants, when they feel a bit uncomfortable to take from the charity, but then there is really nice work done by our colleagues, Shachar Eyal and his collaborators, that they found 
that it really matters which charity oh, yeah. that is. So if it's a charity that you support, you will not lie. You become honest. But if it's a charity that you dislike politically, you think that they are really the bad ones, then people lie a lot to right. take away money from this uh, charity that they dislike. So people bend their ethical... Well, they act in ways that uh, trade off their honesty, in this case, and other normative causes that they support, like charity. And they would trade their honesty for support for a charity they believe or a goal that they believe in. Right. So it seems to be sort of we want to feel good about ourselves, mm -hmm. but at the same time, if possible, get some benefits of cheating. Right. So we want to have the cake and eat it too. Exactly. And in some situations, it seems to be much easier to walk away from a study like the ones that you've been doing and feel good about ourselves. Yeah. I mean, one thing that we've already covered is a bit like, okay, who's harmed by this? matters but on the other hand like you just said the studies by by Shahal seem to show that it also seems to matter if i can help someone right? mm -hmm. and some studies have actually really looked at well what effect does these positive social consequences have yeah on on people's willingness yeah. to cheat exactly so you know one of the things that we've recently started to do well recently four or five years ago we started to look into a setting in which we make this die rolling task but slightly more complex. We added another person. And the game works like that. So you roll a die as before, but then the outcome that you report is sent to another person that you don't know. You just know that this is someone that is also at the, doing the experiment at the same time at the lab. This person learns that the first mover, the first person reported a six, rolls a die as well and reports the outcome. Right, so we, we have basically, let's say I roll a die, I uh, roll a four, but I report a six, and then you are informed that I reported a six. Exactly, that's the only thing I know. I only know that you reported a six, I don't know what you really rolled, but now I'm rolling a die, and if I hit the number that you, man you, that you mentioned or that you reported, we get this value in euros. Okay. So if I say six, both of us earn six euros. If I say any other number in this example, we get nothing. So I have a strong motivation to say six. And then you learn what I say and we keep going and playing this game for 20 rounds. The interesting thing here is that there are two competing motivations. On the one hand, you might want to be honest and follow the rules of the task, suggesting that you need to report the number that you observe. On the other, you want to be cooperative. You want to help the other person. And what, yeah. So basically we have honesty on one side, Mm -hmm. And cooperation on the other side. Exactly. What, what wins them? Cooperation, yeah. big time. So the, the thing is that, of course, by cooperating, you earn more. And then you have all the incentives in the world to frame the situation as a situation that you need to show your cooperativeness or you're motivated to be cooperative and much less so to be honest. And then people lie a lot. And then compared to all the past research, and there are thousands of thousands of people now rolling dice and reporting the outcomes. Mm -hmm. and, and we know that people lie to modest extents in these kind of tasks, they lie much more, mm. 30 to 50% more compared to the individual setting. Wow. So it seems that once you give people this social justification of, hey, let's collaborate, let's do it for the team. It's not for me. I'm not being greedy. I just want to help. I just want to be a team player. I just want to contribute it's a very useful justification for them to bend ethical rules so when we when you try to think about settings 
in which you want to fight the tendency to bend ethical rules. You need to carefully think about the incentive structures that you create and the settings which might be fostering teamwork, all for one, one for all, etc., which could be good, but how do you harness this feeling of cooperativeness without running the risk of increased uh, dishonesty? Right. So I think, I mean, the paper of, uh, the title of that paper was, I think, put it very nicely, like it's the collaborative roots of corruption, right? Yeah. So there seems to be often with many uh, forms of corruption, this sort of collaborative element that might make it easier for us to engage in it, right? So you could obviously apply that to bribery. Right? Yeah. We have a quid pro quo, which exactly. right now is in the media. Yeah. So we both gain from it. Yeah. And this way we might also uh, have an easier time to justify it. Yes. Now you did an experiment recently that I found fascinating where you found something that you called ethical free riding. Yeah. And I think this has very interesting implications. Could you tell us a bit more about what you what you did there? Absolutely. So I think that there the question that we had was fine. People might be lying more, trading off honesty for cooperation, but in reality, people don't show up to labs and being assigned a partner. They just find the people that they want to work with. So they team up with others and, uh, and interact. And we had in mind, what does that mean? How would that partner selection, how would the partner selection process influence people's likelihood to yeah, be honest or cooperate with others? And therefore, we just had them play this dyadic dye-rolling game, the dye-rolling game with a partner. But after every three rounds, we asked them, do you want to stay with your partner or switch? Now, we had a very clear prediction for the dishonest people. We thought the dishonest person just wants to find a dishonest partner to maximize profit. And indeed, that's what we find. Dishonest people, if they're matched up with an honest person that doesn't match the numbers that they report, they just say switch. Yeah. They get the other person to say the numbers that they report, six most typically, so they would say 666, uh, and their partner would match, they're happy, they stay. Very strong effect. The question was, what would the honest people do? And that's not so trivial, because an honest person that doesn't want to benefit from the other's uh, dishonesty might say, or will say, switch. So if I'm an honest person reporting one, two, and five, because this is really what I saw in the three rounds that I've been playing the game, and my partner matched these numbers, one, two, and five, which is really unlikely, less than half a percent that this is real. If I'm matched with such a person, so now I know that my earnings are based on the, another person's lies, I might say, I don't want to be in, in this situation. I want to switch. I want an honest partner. In contrast, you have another possibility, which is what we call ethical free riding, suggesting that people would be, that honest people, will actually enjoy being matched with a dishonest person. Why? Because they are honest and we see that they're being rolled on the screen. So we have evidence for their honesty. So if you go on and check whether they were honest or not later on, you will have hard evidence for their honesty. But at the same time, they have another person lying. So they can enjoy another person's lies that benefit them without having to get their hands dirty. Right. So they can basically enjoy the best of both worlds, right? So they can feel good about themselves. They didn't have to lie. But they, by the switch and stay decision, can sort of influence that they stay with a person that allows them to still get the, the monetary benefits of cheating. Exactly. 
Exactly, and I think this is exactly the point. And we find that indeed there are quite some people that are engaging in, in such behavior. So, yeah, the amazing thing for us was that many honest people stayed with their dishonest partners. We were amazed by the proportion of honest people that were, that were choosing to stay with their dishonest partners. And in a way, it's, it's really fascinating because you can think of the honest people that are sitting in all kinds of offices and know that things are too good to be true in terms of what's going on in the other offices, that the performance of the company is too good to be true, but nobody opens their mouth and says anything. So nobody, well, you know, we know that the amount of whistleblowers is very low. They pay a huge cost. One way to look at it is that they are ethically free riding the success of their team members that they achieved by bending ethical rules and not willing to, to take the, the risk, and there are risks in exposing this kind of behavior. Right. Yeah, like you said, it definitely has implications for whistleblowing. And yeah. I think that is a nice segue to the question that I have been um, wanting to ask you, because some people might say, well, people are rolling dye in, in, a, in a cubicle, in a laboratory. What does that really tell us about cheating and corruption out there and how can we even get like practical insights from from these studies what would you respond to this kind of yes, critical yeah. I, th i think that the response is twofold one many colleagues now have looked at the correlation between die rolling tasks and behaviors out there in the real world like free riding on a bus so going on the bus or public transport without paying or misbehaving in school or being late to work, or even the one that I like most is diluting milk with water when they're selling milk. Uh, so what they found there was, areas. yeah, that basically the people that cheated on the, the die rolling task were also more likely, the milk sellers who cheated, were also more likely to dilute the milk with water. Right? Exactly. <laughs> that's the finding, right? So that's, uh, that's, uh, that's exactly the point. So, so the correlation is not one-to-one, -one, mm. but it exists and it's positive. So these die rolling tasks do measure something. Uh, meaningful. But of course, at the same time, I fully agree that the studies that we do are aimed at understanding psychological mechanisms. So one of the studies that we are looking into now, we are trying to figure out the ways in which we can successfully design environments to create, yeah, we call it islands of integrity, which fits uh, in a nice way with, with what the, the United Nations are trying to do and try to figure out the best ways in which we can encourage people to pursue their own self-interest, but at the same time to use this motivation to do the best for yourself and using markets, make them choose or create settings that put pressure on service providers to provide ethical products. So I think that the main challenge is indeed to take insights from the lab and move them to the real world and try to provide policymakers with potential interventions to design our choice environments in a smarter way right and to be aware of these behavioral insights right so that for sure i mean knowing that people willingly bend the rules when they can justify it is i guess also a very useful insight when you are yeah. designing policies right exactly and i've been wondering because you've been doing research uh, in, in behavioral ethics for quite some time now mm -hmm. and what are some questions that still fascinate you so I think there are many questions that are open that we still didn't explore at all. And some of them really touch upon this interaction between individuals that come from different cultures, different norms, different backgrounds. We've been restricting our 
observations to either comparing between country between cultures or within specific cultures but not to systematically understanding the interplay between the two and I think this is a very important field that we need to start or that we need to get into figuring out this is one this is one of the major ones for me because then we it really allows us to capture something that I'm going back to your previous question is much closer to the real world mm. people are not operating in, as, in isolation so we need to understand the the social aspects. So we talked just now about moving from individual level analysis of whether you would lie or not, which has been done a lot in, in psychology and economics, to a more social group level analysis. Okay, so that includes two people, fine. But of course, groups are much richer, they are larger, they are diverse. And these are things that we now are just, we have a very limited amount of information right. about. So we're sort of scratching the surface of the, the social elements of, of I think uh, so. our ethics. I think so, yeah, absolutely. That's fascinating. So I, we can all expect some interesting work coming out <laughs> soon. Um, final question that we always have in, a, in the podcast is the pick of the podcast, right? Yeah. So it can be a book, it can be a movie, it can be a paper, it can be anything that you feel like our listeners around the world would find interesting related to corruption. You know, when I started to think about corruption, I picked up this book, called Economic Gangsters by uh, two authors, Miguel and Ray Fisman. Ray right? Fisman, exactly. Yeah. And you know, I've been, I read the book in one read and I loved it. It was very accessible and interesting. And one thing that I keep remembering is this example that they have about the diplomats in New York that they've been double parking and getting fines for double parking because they don't care they don't have to pay right so mm. then they are there in the middle of manhattan parking by the un uh, building and getting these fines that are never collected enjoying the diplomatic immunity and the more corrupt the country they came from was the more likely they were to do that mm. but then the municipality came up with a great solution they just stopped acknowledging the diplomatic immunity and they just enforced the fines and then this correlation disappears right. at once people react to incentives mm -hmm. so these are diplomats right they earn well but still they don't want to get a fine and pay it pay for it so once the fine is implemented they stop violating the rules right sometimes it's, a, it's, a, it's just as easy as that Right, exactly. I think that's a great great way to end it. I mean, with corruption, it's obviously also often the, the problem how to implement the, the punishment, but it's also a nice, as a positive note, it shows that once it is implemented, it tends to work. Like you said, incentives work. Right? Yeah. That's, uh, right. That's true. Great. Thanks so much for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you want to help us out, leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. It makes it much easier for others to find the show.